Hello, hello again, and welcome back to another new episode of the Old Cranky Bones podcast. I am your host, Chris Wilson. Thank you guys so much for taking the opportunity to be here with me at whatever particular time of the day and or night that you've happened to have downloaded this episode and you're listening. For those of you who are already following or are subscribed to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform of choice, I want to put out a note of appreciation and say thank you to you guys for doing that. This is a hobby for me, like I've mentioned in the past. This is not something that I'm trying to become the next great podcast host. I just like sitting down with you guys in the little car studio out here, talking to you about the stuff that's going on in the news, my thoughts and my opinions on it. And I appreciate you guys taking the time to tune in and listen. So again, thanks so much for being here. Um, My apologies for missing a week with putting out an episode. Um, Had a lot of things going on as of late, um, some family matters that I've been dealing with. And quite frankly, I needed a week to kind of get my head in a good place um, and work through some things because I, I just didn't have it together enough to put the show together the week before last. And uh, had a lot of things on my mind. Let's move on into the news because there has been a lot that's been going on over the last week and a half to two weeks. Some of the stuff that we've missed, we're playing catch up on a little bit. One of the biggest things goes back to Donnie, Donnie, Donnie. As you know, one of my favorite topics, former president and hopefully future inmate Donald Trump, um, taking the stand a week ago Monday at his $250 million civil fraud trial up in New York. Uh, And it went pretty much about like you would think that it would go for anybody who knows anything about Donald Trump. Yeah, it it was pretty much an absolute shit show. Um, I think we knew that was what was going to happen. And that's pretty much what's happened. Um, Pretty much what happened with Trump up on the stand. Um, So uh, coming to you now from Reuters. Just kind of giving a little recap about what happened there. Donald Trump testified for roughly four hours on Monday, uh, being a week ago Monday, at his civil fraud trial in New York as the former U.S. president used the witness stand to boast about his wealth and lash out at the judge overseeing the case. Some key moments from his testimony included judge saying that it was not a political rally for Trump to be up on the stand. While facing questions about his net worth and the value of his assets, Trump tested Judge Arthur and Gorin's patience by rambling about his wealth, the beauty of his properties, and his grievances with the justice system. <laughs> of course he did. Uh, even bringing in Goron at one point to basically lash out at Trump's lawyer, Chris Kyes, and ask, hey, can you control your client? This is not a political rally. This is a courtroom. And Gorin at one point said Trump's answers were repetitive and irrelevant, go figure, and warned that he might dismiss Trump as a witness, even though that never came to pass. Um, I think at one point the judge was so frustrated with Trump that essentially he said he was going to dismiss him and basically take his entire appearance with every negative inference that he could if they couldn't get him under control. But what I think happened there was the judge realized, hey, let this guy hang himself. Get it on the record out there. Get everything on the record for the court case. You know, the the ruling has already happened in summary judgment that Trump committed fraud. He's just trying to determine the penalty phase at this point. If he wants to run his mouth, whatever, so be it. It's going to cost him in the long run. 
Trump testified that his company did not provide accurate estimates of the value of some of his properties to banks, a key component of the trial. Some properties, like his Mar-a-Lago estate and the Doral Golf Course in Florida, were undervalued, he said, while others, like his Trump Tower residence in New York and his Seven Springs estate north of the city, were in fact overvalued. Let's talk a little bit about Doral for a second while we're on that topic. Because later in the week, Trump's daughter, Ivanka, took the stand on Wednesday. And there's an interesting part about the story involving the Doral course um, that I found to be pretty compelling. In that um, when Trump wanted to do work at the Doral golf course, there were not a lot, or really there were no banks out there that would touch this guy to loan him money. His only choice, the only organization that seemed to be willing to work with the guy was Deutsche Bank. And if anybody's been paying any attention to anything that's ever been said about Deutsche Bank, I think you all know that Deutsche Bank, let's just say that they've they've had some questionable clients, done some questionable things in terms of their financial practices in the past. So, hey, you know what? No wonder Donald Trump would be right up their alley, right? based on everything that we know. So one of the conditions, though, that Deutsche Bank placed on Trump in order to obtain his loans um, was that he needed to maintain a minimum net worth of $3 billion. Now, Ivanka, as we've now come to find out, was in charge of basically making that happen. She was in charge of kind of negotiating the deal with Deutsche Bank. Ivanka knew that daddy didn't have $3 billion of net worth. So she shrewdly, to her credit, somehow negotiated it down to about $2 billion in minimum net worth with Deutsche Bank. But one of the things that we've come to find out now is that not only was she concerned about daddy's minimum net worth of meeting that, but behind the scenes, Donnie worked out a deal with all three kids, Don Jr., Ivanka, and Eric, where he actually borrowed money or took money from their revocable trusts, the kids' shiny little trust funds, you know. Um, Donnie worked out a deal with them that he had them sign off on where money came out of their revocable trusts in order for him to meet his minimum obligations to get loans with Deutsche Bank. So basically, uh, Rich Daddy took money from the youngins. He took money from the kids that he didn't have to meet his minimum net worth obligations. Tell me that's not about as Trump as it gets. <laughs> um, but, you know, getting back to his testimony, of course he made a scene on the stand. He railed on and on about how great his properties are. He railed on and on and on about how unfair the trial is. Very, very unfair. He called Letitia James a political hack. He insulted the judge to his face. Let him do it. Let him do it. This guy's going to lose a lot of money. He's going to lose a lot of money when it's all said and done. Money that he doesn't have. He doesn't have it unless he's bilking it from his supporters, which is how he's paying the majority of his legal fees now, certainly how he's paying his lawyers. He doesn't have it. And he's probably going to lose his ability to do business in New York. So I would think that once the defense wraps up its case over the course of the month of December, and we move on to the judge making his decision on the penalty phase of the trial, 
Um, Donnie's going to have some pretty big problems. And not that he's not pissed and grumpy every day as it is, but he's going to be even more pissed and grumpy. And he's going to be moving right from this right into the Jan 6 case with Jack Smith and the feds, which is currently still slated to begin in late March. March 24th, if I'm not mistaken. I've got to go back and look. Um, it's the day before Super Tuesday. i got to check that date. But either way, you know, he's going to be in court doing that. I kept thinking the whole time this guy was on the stand, this is a civil trial. He needed to get on the stand, and he needed to say what he had to say. He's probably not going to do that when he's facing an actual criminal trial. Um, If he does, good God, imagine how bad this guy's going to hang himself on the Jan 6 case. And maybe he does need to get up there. You know what? For you guys defending Trump in the Jan 6 case, Go ahead, put his ass up on there on the stand and uh, let him make a complete jackass out of himself. Let him hang himself. We all know that every lawyer who's ever represented Trump at any time where there was a possibility that he was going to have to make an appearance on the stand, they've all said, we can't put this guy on the stand. We can't do it. He rambles on and on incessantly, and he just harms himself at every possible turn. So I say let him. And let's see what happens. Boy, this past Tuesday, November 7th, was election day in this country. And like a lot of people out there, I was kind of sitting in front of the TV set, uh, tuning back and forth from some shows, but kind of keeping an eye on cable news, the CNNs and the MSNBCs of the world trying to see how things were going in some of the other states out there. A lot of key contests going on out there. And at the end of the night, ended up being a really, really good night for Democrats overall. Um, Some of the key takeaways from election night 2023, uh, you know, the Democrats notched early wins in Kentucky and Ohio. Um, They had plenty of good news to celebrate on uh, Tuesday's off-year election. And I think it ended up just being more evidence that uh, Democrats can win races that are centered on national debates over abortion. Abortion has become um, a very key topic for Democrats to run on, and they're seeing some success on it. Coming to you now from uh, PBS NewsHour um, on this particular topic, abortion rights supporters won an Ohio ballot measure, and the Democratic governor of Beat Red, Kentucky, held on to his office by campaigning on reproductive rights and painting his opponent as extremist. A Democrat won an open seat on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court after campaigning on his pledge to uphold abortion rights, and Democrats won a majority in the Virginia State Senate, blocking Republicans from being able to pass new abortion restrictions. Although the wins won't necessarily be enough to make them feel secure heading into next year's presidential election, the off-year elections have major implications for all of those states, and provide a snapshot of American politics heading into 2024. But two big names, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, were not on the ballot this time, and how Americans view them will be a huge factor in shaping up next year's race. So let's talk a little bit about some of the key results coming out of Tuesday's voting. Uh, Democrats were able to notch two early wins Tuesday night in both Kentucky and Ohio, which are both states that, as we know, voted for Donald Trump in 2020. In both states, abortion was the main issue. This is a winning issue for Democrats, a winning issue that they're on the right side of. 
So if you look down in Kentucky, you've got a Democratic governor by the name of Andy Bashir, who was reelected, frankly, rather handily, you know, in a state that Trump won by 26 percentage points back during the election. Bashir had criticized the abortion views of his Republican challenger, an attorney general by the name of Daniel Cameron, a guy that had a rather healthy endorsement from Donald Trump um, by using debates and uh, television ads to do so. In fact, he had one ad which was particularly effective um, that I was able to go back and review, which featured a, uh, a woman who miscarried after being raped by her stepfather at the age of 12, guys. Expressing some disbelief at Daniel Cameron's opposition to abortion in cases of rape and incest. Very powerful, very effective ad that I think um, is a key factual component about the Democratic stance on abortion restrictions in this country. Speaking of which, up in Ohio, they had a ballot measure that was preserving abortion rights that passed in a state that Trump also won by eight percentage points in 2020. Republicans had already tried to derail the measure by calling an unusual August referendum to make it harder to pass ballot measures, an initiative that was roundly rejected by Ohio voters. Um, What's interesting about this is when you put this thing on a statewide ballot, on a statewide referendum, people show up and they they vote, excuse me, for a woman's right to choose in these situations. It is well known, or at least it should be by now, that abortion and forcing control over a woman's reproductive and health decisions, her most personal ones, are a losing issue for Republicans. It's a losing issue, guys. And you would think they would figure it out by now, but no, they're stubborn as hell. In fact, in Ohio, ever since losing this ballot measure on Tuesday night, they've decided they're just going to try to do it the old-fashioned way and now legislate their way into basically stripping the judicial authority to enforce that ballot measure. The people came out in force on Tuesday night in Ohio, and they said, hell no, you're not going to pass your archaic-ass abortion restrictions on us. It's not going to happen. We want our freedom to make our decisions for ourselves. And that's not good enough for Republicans in Ohio. It's not good enough for them because now that they've lost, now that the people have spoken, they're trying to figure out another way to force their way of life, their views, their restrictions on people. And people are not going to have it. Now, some people might come out and say, yeah, well, they don't honor elections. So how are you going to keep them from doing it by even by something as simple as voting them out of office? Number one, you have to do it. You got to vote these freaking people out of office. And you have to spank them so damn hard, it's like they went back in time and pissed off their mama. You have to do it. You got to whip them. Abortion is not a winning issue for these guys. And you've got to hold them accountable when it comes to this sort of stuff. Another big thing that happened on Tuesday at night was you had a seat in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, an open seat, 
that was won by Democrat Dan McCaffrey, um, who himself is a, a defender of abortion rights. Uh, that's a tremendous victory up in Pennsylvania um, because it's also going to help maintain control um, of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And this is something you have to think of down the road coming up in the 2024 election when you're probably going to have another close election in hand and you want to make sure that you don't have a state Supreme Court that's going to be slanted to one side politically and inclined to rule against democracy and doing what's right. But I think one of the biggest takeaways from Tuesday night's elections happened in Virginia. So in Virginia, you've got a House of Delegates and a Senate that are now firmly in the hands of Democrats. And this is such a huge, huge thing because you were about to have an unholy triumvirate there of Republican control in Virginia underneath Glenn Youngkin that was going to allow good old Glenn to take Virginia and essentially turn it into what Ron DeSantis has already done done in Florida, which is put forth his agenda and then have a state legislature that was going to openly pass everything that he wanted to do, no questions asked. And I guarantee you, you were looking at some really, really restrictive abortion controls going on down there in Virginia as well. That was going to be a big, big damn issue. And thank God you guys showed up and you made your voices heard in Virginia, and you made sure that you did not give Glenn Youngkin complete control of the state legislature in Virginia. Because, ladies, you're going to be in for some bad shit going on there. So, um, you know, I think when it comes to the entirety of taking a look at Tuesday night, uh, the outcomes, I think, really kind of suggest a transformed political landscape um, that's happened ever since the conservative majority of the Supreme Court overturned the federal right to an abortion last year. You know, there are abortion rights that have... Um, passed in a plethora of states now, and a lot of them in Republican-run states. And you've got some where there are people who are trying to get it on a statewide ballot initiative, but you've got states that are probably going to make that very difficult to happen, my home state of South Carolina being one of them. Um, So we just got to keep fighting the good fight. Overall, a good night for Democrats. Might not turn out this way in 2024, but again, some surprising results. Just goes to show that when abortion's on the ballot, Democrats can win elections over that issue. But we got to translate this now over to 2024, and we've got to make sure that we continue to perform well and that we continue to talk about the things that are important moving into the 2024 election. But good job, everybody, on Tuesday night. Big night for the Democrats. Big wins. And uh, good for democracy. And damn it, quite frankly, good for America. I want to turn the page a second here and talk a little bit about what's been going on at the Supreme Court this past week. But before I do, let me throw a couple of stats your way, because it's important to put this whole conversation into context. Did you know that nearly half of all women murdered in the United States are killed by either a current or a former intimate partner? 
and that more than half of those, when they're murdered, die at the hands of a firearm. Women are five times more likely to be murdered by an abusive partner in the United States of America when they have access to a gun, when that partner has access to a gun. In 2019 alone, an average of 70 women each month, each month of the year, 70 women were killed by an intimate partner in the U.S. in 2019 alone. Between the years of 2011 and 2020, there's been a 6% increase in intimate partner homicides of women. If you talk to women today in the United States, four and a half million women, that's four and a half million women in the United States today have reported being threatened by an intimate partner with a gun. And nearly a million women that are alive today have either been shot at or actually shot by an intimate partner in an abusive relationship. Now, why am I throwing these stats at you? Because it has to do with a guy by the name of Zaki Rahimi. Let's talk about Zaki, and let's talk about why he's so important. So, Zaki Rahimi is a Texas man whose case is currently being heard in the U.S. Supreme Court and was argued just this past week. Now, the case involves Rahimi, who was accused of hitting his girlfriend during an argument in a parking lot and then firing a gun at a witness that observed the crime back in December of 2019. Now, later after it happened, Rahimi also called the girlfriend and threatened to shoot her if she told anybody about the assault. The girlfriend obtained a protective order from a judge uh, back in Tarrant County in Texas in February of 2020. And then 11 months later, this guy was a suspect in an additional shooting where the police ended up searching his apartment and they found guns in his apartment. He eventually pled guilty to violating a federal law. And the appeals court later overturned that convention when it struck down the law. So the Supreme Court is now in the process of hearing the Biden administration's appeal on this law. So why is this case important? Why is what's been going on at the Supreme Court this week important? Well, the case is important because it raises the basic question of whether individuals placed under domestic abuse restraining orders should be restricted from carrying firearms in the first place. This is a case that has the potential to have far-reaching implications in the U.S. firearms debate. So the law that's in question here, which is known as 18 U.S.C. 922, Section 8, Subsection G, it prohibits those who are subject to domestic violence restraining orders from owning firearms. Now, gun rights organizations, including, yes, the NRA, who is partially bankrolling this whole thing all the way up to Supreme Court on this guy's behalf, because, of course, they are. Uh, organizations like the NRA are supporting Rahimi's challenge to the law, uh, which up to date has blocked nearly 77,800 firearm sales over the last 25 years. So what's at stake here, guys, is a law that works and has been supported by both Republicans and Democrats in Congress. This case has the potential to test how the new conservative majority in the Supreme Court uh, will push the issue of gun rights in terms of exactly 
how far are they going to go with these things? How far are they going to go with the issue of gun rights in this country? Because this conservative Supreme Court has thrown some doozies on us already, as we know. But what I want to get at the heart of the element here is I want to take a little bit closer look at what Zaki Rahimi did. This is a 23-year-old dude that got into an argument with his girlfriend in a parking lot in December of 2019, threatened her. Somebody witnessed the event, a bystander, and when this guy realized that somebody witnessed the event, this guy whipped a gun out of thin air, fired at the bystander that witnessed the crime. This guy, like I said, that took place in December of 2019. So in December of 2019, he was accused of hitting his girlfriend during an argument at a parking lot, and then he noticed that there was a bystander standing by that witnessed the event. So this guy draws a gun, fires at the bystander for no reason other than the guy witnessed what was going on. A little bit later on, after all that went down, he ended up calling the girlfriend, threatened to kill her, shoot her if she told anybody about the assault that happened. She got the protective order against him in Tarrant County in Texas in February of 2020. And then as it turns around, later in May of 2020, this guy was arrested again after approaching the girlfriend's house in the middle of the night when she called the cops on him. Let's flash forward to November of 2020. At this point, he's gotten involved with another woman. He ends up being charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon after threatening this lady with a gun. You're moving forward now to uh, between December of 2020 and January of 2021. This is a, keep in mind, this is a two-month period between December of 2020 and January of 2021. This guy is involved in five separate shooting incidents, including shooting at a man who purchased drugs from him after the man spoke disrespectfully to him and talked trash about him online firing into another guy's house with an AR-15 and taking a shot at a constable's car. Now, during this entire time, the guy was subject to a civil protective order and had been entered by a Tarrant County, Texas district judge after the alleged assault of the ex-girlfriend in the first place. The order expressly prohibited this guy from, or from owning a firearm. Bottom line. So now you have gun advocacy groups that are suing on behalf of this dude to basically ensure that his right to obtain and own a firearm, which they claim is enshrined by the Second Amendment, is reinstated to him. Now, to his credit, the guy has supposedly said from jail, wherever he's at now, that he has no interest in owning a firearm going forward, and that he's turned his life around and he wants to turn over a new leaf and so forth and so on and so be it. But the core question at hand here is the court is going to make a decision that has the potential to have long-reaching implications on the ownership of firearms by persons who were involved in domestic violence incidents. What the NRA and other groups are claiming is that this is a slippery slope to allow any excuse to pop up to keep people from owning a firearm. They're claiming that, hey, you get pulled over and you're doing 60 and a 35 in your car. All of a sudden, are you going to be deemed a dangerous person? Are they going to prevent you from owning a firearm if that's the case? Let's be honest here. Let's just, uh, let me go ahead and put this to rest once and for all. This law works. 77,000 
800 incidents where people had been prohibited from owning a firearm under that law that probably saved lives. If anybody tuned in to episode two of this podcast, and you know that I went on a long rant about the incident that happened in Maine with the mass shooting, I think I've already made my feelings clear on how I feel about gun control legislation, gun violence in America. I'm not going to rehash that, but I will say this. Should this guy have his legal right to own a firearm reinstated? Hell no. Hell no. Not only did this guy, you know, all the things that I read off to you that this guy did, but five separate incidents involving a weapon over the span of two months after he had already been banned from owning a firearm? Call it age, call it immaturity, call it youthful exuberance, call it what you want. I read the stats to you at the outset of this segment. Women are dying every day at the hands of domestic abusers and intimate partners with a firearm in this country. It is time we take their safety into account. Make sure this law is upheld. Make sure this ban stays in place. If you are convicted of a domestic violence incident in this nation, then you have forfeited your right to own a firearm, plain and simple. Up to and including and especially if your domestic violence incident involved the use and or threatened use of a firearm to begin with. You should have thought about that before you did it. And that's the bottom line. Uphold this law. It's looking like the Supreme Court's probably headed in that direction. But who knows? We all know they've done, cra- they've done crazy shit before. But that's it. If you, if you hit a woman, if you threaten a woman with a gun, you don't need a damn gun. Take them away and make sure the teeth are involved in the law so that when they violate the law, then these people are put away where they belong. There's no damn room for gun violence in this nation. There's certainly no damn room for domestic abusers, in particular men, who threaten and assault and harm women and intimate partners with a damn firearm. Lock them up where they belong. Let's shift gears ever so slightly here, but kind of in keeping with the same theme, and talk about a young lady by the name of Jillian Ludwig. If you're not familiar with the name of Jillian Ludwig, let me bring you up to speed just a little bit. Jillian was an 18-year-old college freshman. She attended school at Belmont University near the Nashville, Tennessee area, originally from New Jersey, and was attending college in the area on a music business um, track uh, where she was majoring in music business. Um, She was an avid musician. She was a bass player, huge fan of the Beatles, very talented vocalist. Uh, When I first read this story, I took an opportunity to kind of dig into Jillian's Instagram a little bit, which basically is just a collection of her musical appearances and very reflective of her love for music and her passion for music. And uh, I saw just how immensely talented that Julian was. She was walking on a uh, in a park last week when she was struck in the head by a stray bullet, um, allegedly fired by a uh, 29-year-old man by the name of Shaquille Taylor. Uh, a bullet that ended her life. Um, Police had identified Taylor as a suspect and took him into custody. He is being held on a $280,000 bond. He's charged with aggravated assault and evidence tampering. Uh, 
and apparently lived at a uh, public housing unit across the street from the park and had been shooting at a car, I guess at random or for whatever reason, uh, when one of his bullets went astray and struck Jillian in the head and eventually ended her life. The thing that caught my eye about this is because I read a little bit more about Taylor's history, um, including in 2021 where he had been charged with three counts of assault with a deadly weapon previously. Apparently, he and another guy had been firing at another car back in 2021, this one driven by a woman and her young children, uh, when at least two of those bullets struck the vehicle. The thing was, those charges were ultimately dismissed earlier this year, and Taylor had been released after two court-appointed doctors testified that he was clearly incompetent to stand trial. Under federal and state law, mentally incompetent defendants cannot be prosecuted. As the story goes, this guy had an ammonia infection at birth, and this affected him to the point where, um, leading up to today, his brain function continues to only function at a kindergarten level. But yet, his right to own a firearm was not impeded, and he was allowed to have a firearm. And now we have this incident which has led to yet another tragic loss of life in this country. If you know anything about me, if you listen to episode two, you know that I have a proclivity for getting pissed off about the needless loss of life as a result of the lax gun laws in this nation. And I think this is yet another example. So while this was a completely random thing, and you might say that Jillian was in the wrong place at the wrong time, I think the point I'm trying to make here was that shouldn't have mattered. It shouldn't have mattered. This is a young man who should not have been able to have access to a firearm. And had our laws been able to prevent that from happening, then you've got a young lady who may have been able to live and fulfill her tremendous potential. But instead, you've now got an 18-year-old who's taken her last breath, and she's sung her last song, and she's played her last chord on the bass guitar. Um, and it's a tragic and it's, it's a horrifying thing that should not have had to happen. These things stick with me on such a profound level because while I didn't know this young lady personally, she's got parents and she's got friends and family who are grieving tonight, um, in such a profound way. They've been grieving ever since this incident happened and I can't help but be struck by the fact that so many of these things are preventable. They're completely 100% preventable. But for some reason, we can't seem to get past the point in this country where we can put a stop to this kind of shit. And until we come together and until we figure this out, we're going to keep losing people like Jillian and people out there every day of the week whose lives are tragically lost as a result of the lax gun laws in this country. So much loss, so much pain, and it didn't have to be this way. Uh, But I want to take a moment this week to honor Jillian, and uh, may she rest in peace, and uh, may her friends and her family hopefully find some peace and some comfort in the coming days.
And finally today, I'd be remiss if I didn't take just a couple of minutes to talk about the passing of actor Matthew Perry. Now, Matthew, as you know, most famously known for playing the role of Chandler Bing on Friends, also did a lot of other great work on TV, had a fabulous role on The West Wing, and was in a really, really funny movie with Bruce Willis, a great little movie called The Whole Nine Yards back in the day. was in a little bit of a less funny sequel called The Whole Ten Yards, but really just a great body of work and an acting career behind Matthew. Uh, but of course, most famously known for being Chandler Bing on the Friends TV sitcom. Little story about that. When my wife and I first got together, when we first moved in together, um, back in the day, so to speak, she was a big fan of Friends. I watched a few episodes, and at the time, it was still airing. This was before the last episode had aired, the last season. This thing was still airing on NBC, and we would watch it, I believe, on Thursday nights. Um, and uh, I gradually became a big fan. Now, we started collecting um, DVD box sets of the seasons, and this kind of became our ritual thing in the way that we spent time together. We um, you know, would spend so many evenings just relaxing and popping in a DVD, and we would watch every season from start to finish. I can't tell you the number of times I've probably seen that entire series from episode one all the way to episode whatever the number was that it ended on. Every single episode, countless times. And I just want to say that that was really our thing. We've made so many little friends jokes together, um, had so much fun just spending time together, enjoying and laughing at this show and just being together. And this connection with Matthew's character and the other characters on the show, and really just being a big fan of the Friends TV show in general, I think has just been a big part of our lives. It's been a big part of our relationship. So naturally, um, to hear about Matthew's passing a couple of weeks ago on a Saturday night was a very tragic thing. And I know that he had faced a lot of adversity and a lot of challenges in his life and had recently come out with a uh, a very widely acclaimed book that I understand was doing well and was working hard at getting his life together. But Matthew also helped out a lot of people with similar problems. And uh, by all accounts, just very talented, very funny guy. Um, everybody says this guy was um, very thoughtful and just an all-around great guy to be around. Um, so here's to Matthew Perry. And um, we'll miss you. Folks, that's going to be a wrap on this week's episode of the Old Cranky Bones podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to download the episode and listen this week. If you're interested in keeping this party going and you do not want to miss an episode, you can do that. But you're going to have to follow or subscribe to the show. You can do that on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music. You can do it on Spotify, your preferred podcast platform of choice. If you want to follow me on social media and keep the conversation going, these days I'm primarily on Instagram threads. You can find me over there at oldcranky underscore bones. That's oldcranky underscore bones. And you can always send an email in directly to the show at oldcrankybonesshow at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening this week. And until next time, you guys take it easy. We'll catch you down the road.